Uh, some of you have been looking at the uh, edition of the Morning Post. I should point out that this was a regular issue. In other words, all 28 pages that was distributed in Washington, uh, somewhat to the surprise of a lot of people uh, who actually wanted to believe in what we will call fake news. So that's one of the... <laughs> questions that we will ask of David Edwards this afternoon to explain. Uh, people at the Washington Post, I know from uh, a friend there, uh, rather cheered on the, uh, the pranksters and said that this was a great, uh, great feat. In other words, the, the Post itself, with the exception of the uh, the lawyers who had to uh, deal with infringement of copyright, uh, the rest of the people at the Post thought that this was a great stunt. Uh, and they added that would this, this were actually true. Uh, David Edwards is well known to all of us. I will simply say that he has taught at the University of Texas for 50 years, which is uh, somewhat of a, uh, uh, an unprecedented a uh, record, I believe. Well, there are others who have surpassed that. I believe, but in the government department, no. I think not. No. no. Uh, so David Edwards is going to speak to us this afternoon about fake news, and then Sam Baker is going to uh, respond. David. Well, thank you all for coming. Uh, normally, I speak relatively extemporaneously with some notes, but this topic is important enough that I've actually written a manuscript, so you'll pardon me <laughs> if I, this seems a little less spontaneous than it might be, I hope, because it might be a little more substantive than it would be if it were extemporaneous. There's always been fake news, although its nature and circulation and characterizations of disliked news as fake have evolved with politics and technology and are on an unprecedented scale today. Some trace fact news, false news, fake news back to ancient Egypt, when in the 13th century BCE, Ramses the Great portrayed the Battle of Kadesh as an Egyptian victory when the treaty between the Egyptians and the Hittites revealed that the battle was actually a stalemate. It became much more widespread following invention of the printing press in 1439. The first recognized instance of fake news in what became the United States occurred when Benjamin Franklin, of all people, wrote fake news about murderous scalping Indians in league with King George uh, uh, in order to generate support for the American Revolution. There have been many since. Alternative facts, on the other hand, are a new phenomenon, at least by that name. Trump presidential counselor Kellyanne Conway coined that term in explaining, quote unquote, how newly inaugurated President Trump's press secretary could declare that Trump's inaugural crowd was larger than President Obama's when crowd estimates, aerial photos, and other evidence clearly demonstrated the opposite. 
She later defended her choice of words, defining the term as, quote, additional facts and alternative information. <laughs> it was later pointed out that the term bore a close relation to the term truthful hypo hyper hyperbole in Trump's 1987 book, The Art of the Deal, where it was defined allegedly by Trump, although he had a ghostwriter, as we know, uh, uh, defined as, quote, an innocent form of exaggeration and a very effective form of promotion. In that book, Trunk claimed that, quote, people want to believe that something is the biggest and the greatest and the most spectacular, end quote. The derision that Conway was widely subject to eventually subsided, and both Austrian and German linguists declared the phrase alternative facts the non-word of the year 2017. <laughs> but when the use of the term alternative facts subsided, the use of the term fake news only increased, led by the president himself. The Washington Post has been keeping a running tally of, quote, false or misleading claims, end quote, by the president since his inauguration. As of March 17, 2019, the latest time when they published their total, the total was 9,179 false or misleading claims. That includes 201 uses of the term fake news to apply to statements that he disapproves of or disagrees with and to various news organizations, especially CNN. The president, perhaps inadvertently, revealed what he means by fake in a tweet May 9th, 2018, quote, the fake news is working overtime. Just reported that despite the tremendous success we are having with the economy and all things else, 91% of the network news about me is negative, parentheses, fake. Why do we work so hard in working with the media when it is corrupt? Take away credentials? End quote. Trump told CBS's Leslie Stahl before the cameras were turned on for an interview, quote, you know why I do it? I do it to discredit you all and demean you all so that when you write negative stories about me, no one will believe you, end quote. The Washington Post archive also offers thousands of examples of fake news generated by the president himself. This is what is most unprecedented. The president not only as the applier of the term fake news to other sources, but also as himself the source of fake news. In 2018, academic researchers studied consumption of fake news during the 2016 campaign. One conclusion, according to Brendan Nyan, one of the authors interviewed by NBC News, was that, quote, people got vastly more misinformation from Donald Trump than they did from fake news websites, end quote. <laughs> However, there has been a stunning proliferation of fake news websites since the internet became accessible for public use in the 1990s. These websites specialize in creating attention-grabbing news, quote unquote. Sometimes this is simply for profit. For example, Justin Kohler created a series of fake news websites quote, for fun, end quote, earning some $10,000 a month from advertising on his sites. That advertising has nothing to do with the value of the site. It's just how many clicks you get, and you get rewarded with money uh, for having uh, large numbers of clicks. The more troubling instances, however, 
are those engineered by political operatives at home or abroad. And the most effective may be those created by governments to employ bots, computer robots, to generate fake news and spread it to various social media to influence elections, as the Mueller investigation found the Russians did during the 2016 presidential election. Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, asserted in 2017 that the three most significant new disturbing internet trends, trends that are preventing the internet from, quote, serving humanity, end quote, as he intended it to do, those three trends are the surge in the use of the internet by governments for both citizen surveillance and cyber warfare and fake news. One particularly concerning phenomenon today is what are called internet trolls, people who sow discord on the internet by starting arguments or upsetting people by posting inflammatory or otherwise provocative material in online communities such as news groups, forums, chat rooms, or blogs. Some trolls operate for their own amusement, but others purposely abuse or mislead, often in political realms. In the 2016 election, Russia had an army of more than a thousand paid trolls engaged in creating and circulating fake news and disinformation about Hillary Clinton and created social media accounts that resembled actual voters in swing states, which were used to disseminate damaging assertions about Clinton. And Russia continued such activities after the election to further its own political goals. In 2018, the RAND Corporation, perhaps the premier think tank established during the Cold War to conduct research, originally for the military, but increasingly also for other entities and audiences, published a study it called Truth Decay. The study analyzed four trends it detected. One, increasing disagreement about facts and analytical interpretations of facts and data. Two, a blurring of the line between opinion and fact. Three, the increasing relative volume and resulting influence of opinion and personal experience over fact, and four, declining trust in formerly respected sources of factual information. That study concluded that, quote, such phenomena as fake news are only symptoms of a much more complex system of challenges, one with roots in the ways that human beings process information, the prevailing political and economic conditions, and the nature of the changed media environment, end quote. This study found the drivers of these trends to be cognitive processing and cognitive biases, changes in the information system, transformation of conventional media, internet, and social media, spread of disinformation, competing demands on the educational system, and polarization, political polarization, socio-demographic, and economic polarization. It found the agents of truth decay to be media, academia, and research organizations, political actors in the government, and foreign actors. The challenge posed by fake news and related manipulations of the internet and of communication more generally is becoming a universal problem. Quote, Fake news is now the poison in the bloodstream of our societies, destabilizing democracy and undermining trust in institutions and the rule of law, end quote, wrote Tony Hall, director general of the BBC in the Financial Times recently, continuing to quote, 
It has become a powerful tool for profit or political gain at all levels, from villages to repressive regimes. In the West, we've witnessed its power to distort public debates, fuel divisions, and influence voters. In emerging and developing economies, it can generate violence. In these countries, where digital literacy is lower and democratic institutions more fragile, the rise of misinformation constitutes an urgent crisis." End quote. Nearly a billion people are registered to vote in India's upcoming elections, and India is one of the fastest growing markets for social media platforms and messaging apps. Imagine the opportunities for misinformation and disinformation. The distinction there is misinformation is relatively inadvertent. Disinformation is purposefully misleading people. Imagine the opportunities for misinformation and disinformation in this country where last year 10 people were killed by lynch mobs after faked footage of a child being snatched by two men on a motorbike appeared on WhatsApp. Other instances of slaughter resulting from or at least encouraged by misinformation and disinformation have occurred recently in Nigeria and Myanmar. And most recently, rumors circulated on social media, especially Facebook, Snapchat, and Twitter, that Roma, better known as gypsies, were kidnapping children, according to some allegations for organ traf trafficking, in Parisian suburbs. And that led to violent attacks on Roma encampments in the suburbs of France. That's from today's New York Times. <laughs> Media can, of course, be manipulated whatever form they take, and they have been historically, as any survey of, for example, American newspapers in the eras of Andrew Jackson or Abraham Lincoln will readily demonstrate. But the possibilities for such manipulation are multiplied when media take to the internet, and the effects can be much more powerful when items go viral. In addition, efforts to expose and correct such effects always lag the damage and pale in impact once that damage has been done. Manipulation is also more easily kept anonymous, rendered pseudonymous, or attributed falsely on the internet, as the foreign interventions in the 2016 presidential election uncovered and documented in the Mueller investigation clearly showed. And with the development and continued improvement of deep fake video manipulation technology, it becomes very easy to make anything look believable. In addition, recent improvements in speech synthesis technology are making it possible to generate seemingly authentic audio of anyone saying whatever the manipulator wishes. The only requirement is that there be a one minute of recorded speech by that person, and it doesn't matter what that person was saying in that one minute. These prospects would be ominous enough if they were limited to countries with long democratic tradition, but they're now being adopted with enthusiasm by many of the most autocratic regimes around the world, ranging from the more advanced autocratic countries, especially Russia and China, to less developed countries such as Egypt. And they will become much more ominous as artificial intelligence capabilities advance and spread or are sold to autocratic regimes. One imminent development will be what is, can be called the industrialization of propaganda. As one recent analysis argued, quote, AI-driven applications will soon allow authoritarians to analyze patterns in a population's online activity 
identify those most susceptible to a particular message and target them more precisely with propaganda. In a, weekly viewed, or in a widely viewed TED talk in 2017, techno-sociologist uh, Zainab Tefeci described a world where, quote, people in power use these algorithms to quietly watch us, to judge us, and to nudge us, to predict and identify the troublemakers and the rebels, end quote. The result, she suggests, may be an authoritarianism that transforms our private screens into per persuasion architectures at scale to manipulate individuals one by one using their personal individual weaknesses and vulnerabilities, end quote. This is likely to mean far more effective influence campaigns aimed at either citizens of authoritarian countries or those of democracies abroad. To understand the nature and the comprehensiveness of the challenge of fake news, we must explore the various stages through which it emerges. These are creation, propagation or dissemination, reception, exception or acceptance or rejection, evaluation, and avoidance or overcoming. Creation can be de novo. For example, the story developed and spread during the 2016 campaign that the Clintons were secretly running a sex trafficking pizza parlor in Maryland. <laughs> or the Russian government's various, that, that sounds preposterous, but one guy heard that and took an automatic uh, weapon and went to that pizza parlor and started shooting people. <clears throat> So uh, uh, the Russian government's various forms of meddling in that election and others, including the Brexit referendum and the French presidential election. Or it can involve interpretation or corruption via a conspiracy assumption, for example, such as conspiracy theorist media figure Alex Jones, Austin's own Alex Jones, <laughs> Uh, developed after the Sandy Hook massacre of elementary school students and teachers at Sandy Hook, asserting that the entire event was actually staged by gun control advocates. Or it can arise through labor, and he's being sued in court now by some of the families of, of murdered uh, children, uh, so we'll see what happens there. Or it can arise through labeling, something President Trump has excelled at in terming the Mueller investigation of possible collusion with Russia, fake news, and a witch hunt. Next, propagation or dissemination. Propagation or dissemination can occur when the president takes advantage of his bully pulpit to speak or when a media outlet such as Fox News, quote unquote, decides what to purvey on its platform, <coughs> which it has established by its twin slogans, fair and balanced, and we report, you decide. Or it can occur through social media, which can take forms such as blogging, tweeting, and retweeting, and commenting on content on an existing site. Or it can take the form of what one critic terms pre-news, in which media figures and or institutions develop elaborate upon and speculate upon the development and significance of something that hasn't yet happened or hasn't come to fruition, a phenomenon that was very widespread during the two years of awaiting the outcome of the Mueller investigation. Next, reception involves accepting and believing or rejecting the content propagated. 
This stage, which I shall examine in more detail below, is shaped by what some call the filters or predispositions that the audience employs or unconsciously is influenced by. This cannot be avoided. It necessarily occurs in any act of perception and cognition. Next, evaluation involves attempting to determine the accuracy or truth of the, quote, news, end quote, report. This can involve various approaches. The most common today, at least in the media, is generally called fact-checking. It's commonly done by various media, newspapers, news services, foundations, or other assertedly impartial individuals or groups. I'll examine various such programs shortly. Avoiding or overcoming fake news can be an individual product, project or an institutional project. Traditionally, the most common recommendations were look for and explore both sides of the matter and look for objectivity. Today, we know that neither of these admonitions is adequate. We know that there are almost always, at least in political matters, more than two sides as there are usually more than two actors, each of which will have his, her, or its side. More sophisticated analyses and understandings today recognize that, largely because of the psychological influences cited above concerning evaluation, there's no clear single objective description or explanation of most social and political matters. The traditional approach commonly recommended to information consumers is to consult multiple sources. Ideally, sources with different values, interests, and or goals. When I was young, I used this approach, subscribing to various news and opinion periodicals understood to be liberal and conservative. Such an approach can help one achieve a more balanced and nuanced understanding of political questions, but it will be of little help in dealing with possible fake news items for obvious reasons. More sophisticated analyses of conflicts <clears throat> now recognize and employ what might be called the politics of problem definition, which recognizes that both presentation of a dispute and formulation of descriptions as well as possible solutions depend enormously on how the issue at hand is described or defined. This is much more than a matter of definition of key terms, although that in itself can be important. Consider the case of what has long been called the welfare problem. Some think the problem is that the existing programs cost too much, so they favor cutting benefits to cut costs. Others think the problem is the benefits don't go far enough to improve outcomes, so they favor expanding and improving benefits. Some think the problem is that recipients should have to earn their benefits, so they favor work requirements. Others think the problem is that benefits foster dependence, so they favor making benefits less appealing and adding programs to encourage or even require work. These are only four positions, but the practical discussion of welfare, there are hundreds of positions with dozens of definitions of the problem, and therefore even more recommendations of program changes. But underlying these practical challenges is the deeper fact that anyone's perspective will be influenced by his or her situation and education or socialization. There's a long-standing adage in politics that where you stand depends on where you sit. Lyndon Johnson titled his presidential memoirs The Vantage Point. In cinema, there's what's known as the Rashomon effect. Each of these reminds us of something we all know, 
that how we view things depends on our location, situation, experience, etc. Furthermore, we know that our brain and our perceptual apparatus function as filters which inescapably censor and distort. If our brains actually had to deal with the entirety of circumstances in any decision situation, we would be frozen in indecision. So our brains edit what comes to them from our sense organs and present that edited picture to us as if it were what's really there, really true, really accurate. In fact, however, we never get more than a highly edited or censored report. Our brains are always abstracting from a plethora of sensory stimuli to limit our experience of, quote, sensory, overloads, sensory overload. Furthermore, they encounter such a panoply of differentiating phenomena that any instant that they are necessarily so, that in any instant they are necessarily also abstracting from difference to make it possible for us to believe we know what the situation actually is. Given all this, is it any wonder that people experience what we assume is the same reality differently and that disagreement inevitably arises? This is the circumstance in which a democratic country requires that its citizens be able to decide and act responsibly, and in which today they are constantly subject to a barrage of conflicting media influences, most of them being of questionable reliability or accuracy. Media are often admonished to emphasize objectivity in their reporting. But careful analysis of challenges to accurate reporting reveal that such a goal is problematic at best. The classic media critic, indeed perhaps the first media critic, A.J. Liebling, famously asserted that freedom of the press belongs to the man who owns one. <laughs> that was half a century ago, long before the electronic media that were supposed to democratize both production and consumption of news. In Liebling's day, there were serious limitations on what could be learned from the media. In the words of one analyst, quote, beyond our limited daily experience, it is television, radio, newspapers, magazines, and books, the media, that furnish our consciousness with the people, places, and events that we agree to call reality. But reality, in a literal sense, is what happens to three and a half billion people, that would now be six billion, all over the world, 24 hours a day. Out of that teeming experience, the media can only give us, in words and pictures, a representation of tiny fragments that are deemed significant or suggestive." End quote. Owners, editors, and reporters did whatever curating, to use a term in vogue today, whatever, whatever, and reporters did whatever curating there was. Objectivity, conceived of as anything more than verifying the accuracy of an account of something, was virtually impossible then. And that was before electronic media made the need for such curation both much more important and much more difficult, given the instantaneous nature of electronic media in the era of 24-hour news cycle. And the skills necessary for consumers to do their own curation may well be atrophying as the challenge is continually magnified. Consider this suggestion, quote, as the reliance on television as a teaching learning device in the largest sense increases, many interpretive and interactive skills may fall into disuse and decay. And since human interaction is the very heart and soul of the political process, a general decline in the analytical and expressive skills which characterize that interaction in the society as a whole 
cannot help but be reflected in the polity as well." End quote. That penetrating and ominous critique was made in 1976, long before the advent of computers and electronic media. Efforts to analyze, critique, and select among various allegedly correct or accurate pieces of news ultimately reduce, once the factors mentioned above have been considered, to the question of truth. But what do we mean by truth, and how are we determined what qualifies as truth? There are three fundamentally different criteria used and debated for determining the truth of an assertion or a description. The first is the coherence or consistency criterion. Does the item in question fit well with the other things that one believes? Is it logically consistent with one's other beliefs? The second is the correspondence criterion. Do the observable features of the assertion correspond to what our senses tell us about the relevant world? The third is the pragmatic criterion. Does the account work in the real world, enabling one to be effective in acting? Which of these three truth criteria is relevant and helpful in assessing the truth claims of the possible fake news item, whether it seems to be worthy of acceptance, is basically a philosophical question. And that's something that philosophers have been debating for centuries and do not seem to have reached agreement on. Most people tend to prefer the correspondence theory these days, at least in everyday life. But employing that criterion in matters of political dispute can be particularly difficult because so much of politics involves secrecy, governmental secrecy, commercial secrecy, personal secrecy. Thus, practically speaking, in political disputes, most people seem to default to some version of the coherence criterion. Does believing this particular assertion as a candidate for being true news fit with other things one believes about politics? Or does it conflict with other held beliefs? Most of the work being done today in public discourse revolves around what is commonly called fact-checking. Many newspapers carry contributions from PolitiFact, a nonpartisan fact-checking website created to sort out the truth in American political discourse. It was created by the Tampa Bay Times, a Florida newspaper, in 2007 and was acquired by the Pointer Institute, a nonprofit school for journalists, in 2018. It's financed by contributions, grants, and ads placed on its website, politifact.com. It evaluates the accuracy of statements by and about politicians, producing a truthometer rating for each. As of March 25th, 2019, PolitiFact had evaluated 657 statements by President Trump. It found 4% true, 11% mostly true, 14% half true, 21% mostly false, 34% false, and 15% pants on fire. The Washington Post has its own fact-checker rating system, awarding a varying number of Pinocchios to statements that range from shading of the facts but no outright falsehoods to four Pinocchios for whoppers. <laughs> the British Broadcasting Corporation has introduced an international anti-disinformation initiative, which it calls Beyond Fake News, and has incorporated something it calls Reality Check as a part of its daily news output. 
In addition, it has invited media organizations from around the world to join a special conference this coming summer to explore how to tackle the global rise of misinformation, deliberate disinformation, and bias, with the goals of developing a concrete action plan that can be implemented quickly. Governments are also becoming involved. President Trump makes varied suggestions often. You've probably heard a bunch of those. Uh, <clears throat> we may be pardoned if we are doubtful that his suggestions would conduce to more accurate reporting. The Indian government has published draft proposals to deal with this problem that include requiring platforms to break end-to-end -end encryption if asked to trace the source of objectionable content something that many observers see as a threat to privacy and freedom of speech. These fears are magnified by the text of another Indian governmental proposal, which would require companies to use automated filters to police content that is, quote, this is the words of the draft legislation, blasphemous, defamatory, obscene, pornographic, pedophilic, libelous, invasive of another's privacy, hateful, or racially or ethnically objectionable, disparaging, relating or encouraging money laundering or gambling, or otherwise unlawful in any manner whatsoever." End quote. How many statements that anybody makes wouldn't <laughs> disqualify in one or another of those criteria? Bloomberg Businessweek, which reported this proposal, pointed out that, quote, the algorithm that could decide what content falls into such categories hasn't been invented yet, end quote. But that's little comfort when we imagine politicians or bureaucrats in any country attempting to apply such regulations. The Chinese government, for example, has long been at work suppressing political discourse it deems inappropriate. The Pointer Institute created an international fact-checking network to promote excellence in fact-checking in 2016. Its governing principles to which member organizations or operations must subscribe are, first, a commitment to nonpartisanship and fairness, second, a commitment to transparency of sources, third, a commitment to transparency of funding and organization, and fourth, a commitment to transparency of methodology, and fifth, a commitment to open and honest corrections. But all the fact-checking and all the penetrating criticism of false and misleading statements will have little effect unless and until citizens pay much more attention to these analyses and become more careful in ascribing truth or accuracy to the rhetoric employed by these political actors and pundits and by themselves and their conversants. Who knows how to bring that about? That's it. Sam Baker. Oh. Well, I've generated many pages of, of notes um, uh, listening to that, that brilliant talk. And I really feel like, David, the thing I want to do most in my response is to elaborate a, a little bit on um, a fascinating point you made at lunch today about um, the, um, the importance of thinking not just about what's true and false in relation to fake news, but to also think about um, the form of news itself. Right? Think about what news 
is and about, in some ways, like the, the, the arbitrariness and the strangeness of news as a social practice. Um, and I think you did a, a fantastic job of analyzing uh, fake news in relation to both the form and the content of the phenomenon. Um, yeah, the second part of the talk, you talked about uh, the different varieties of, of truth and the different kinds of verification that we would want to engage in and talked about some of the public engines of fact-checking in a way that I think is really important. But in the first part of the talk, you talked really well about um, the form of fake news, its etiology, its origins, its spread, its techniques, its history. Um, you analyzed it in terms of its propagation, its dissemination, and you talked about the changes um, in the mediation news recently in ways that I thought just were really um, uh, clear and, and well laid out. But I, I think that thinking about the form and the content of fake news together as, as you discussed them made me want to challenge uh, our audience today in this regard. I, I think of you all, like looking around the room, you know, I think of you as you know, warriors for truth, right? Y'all are people who you really care to verify information, who are willing to, to change your minds, right? Who, you know, will like me, uh, you know, bear grudges against news organizations that you feel like lead you down the garden path. I was embarrassed recently um, when a, you know, a colleague you know, said to me, well, you know, um, there's been a special feature on the area of our interest, the New York Times. You know, have you read it? I said, like, no, I don't read the New York Times. Really? It's like, no. I canceled my print subscription to the New York Times in September 2016. And, you know, of course, when there's an article that someone sends to me, I open it, um, you know, by going to a browser without cookies and, you know, getting the page open, you know. But, I, you know, I'm never going to subscribe to the New York Times again until, you know, there's a major, you know, public reckoning with what happened in 2016. So this is seen as extremely eccentric. Um, you know, by this, this colleague of mine, but I think that you know, I share this, this stance of mine because I think actually it will you know, resonate in the room. Maybe you, know, you wouldn't go to that extreme, but you recognize the, you know, that you too would be somebody who would want to take a stand against you know, a news organization you know, that had misled you, right? And yet, even as you would be like you know, warriors for truth, I look around the room and I see avid consumers of the news, people who consume the news all the time, who might even have sneaked a peek at their phones during the talk to see what the latest news might be, right? You know, who might just be, you know, think, well, other people will think that I'm, you know, checking for important work emails, but in fact, you know, I'm seeing what the latest, you know, news is about, the, you know, the situation with the Mueller report on Twitter, or I might even be seeing the latest Sporting news, right? If I could get into you know real secret shames around news consumption, right? We we are the warriors for the truth, but we're also people who are, you know, in many cases, and certainly in my case, addicted to the news, right? And that's an aspect of the form of fake news that I want to really highlight for us and like challenge us to reflect on, right? The food writer Michael Pollan, um, you know, uh, the guy whose slogan is you know, "Eat food." not too much, mostly plants, right? Um, he has a, a great term for talking about the, the wrong kind of food, the bad kind of food. He says, well, you know, it's 
highly engineered food that's engineered to be hyperpalatable. So delicious. Geniuses, right? Made that you know that formula for Coke, right? That formula for Cheerios. That's why we eat too much of those things. Well, you know, the fake news, right, is fake, but the news is hyperpalatable and it's engineered for our consumption and it's micro-targeted to us individually with the very best, the very latest artificial intelligence, right? To keep us clicking, to keep us engaged. And no matter how we might fight against falsehood in the media arena of the news, right? We should also reckon with the extent to which we too are keeping the ball in the air just by being these avid news consumers, even as we look for the truth. Because part of the problem might be with the biggest lie of all, which is that we need to know the latest information. Do we really, do we always need to? I'm trying to challenge myself to keep my phone in my pocket. Um, and I hope we'll all think about doing the same in the face of fake news. Uh, I'd like to make one point, specific point, to put this in the British con context, and that is you'll remember the bus before the referendum in which it was written that 350 million pounds a week, instead of being paid to the European Union, would go into the National Health Service. So this has a very practical uh, application to the uh, problems of Brexit, the, uh, what is called now in Britain the neverendum. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, Philippa? Questions? David Lyle. Just to uh, represent the kind of statistical political science view that I've already talked to you about before, I think that most political scientists who've been studying the media since the 1920s on to the present have basically come to the conclusion of what they call the minimal effects thesis, which is that most people don't pay attention to politics, most people don't pay attention to the media. When they do, they tend to be very good at filtering out views that are contrary to their own and very good at incorporating views that are similar to their own, uh, that elections, are barely even affected by campaigns, let alone by news media coverage, and that there are a lot of sort of fundamental political, economic, social factors that seem to go into elections that don't really have much to do with, with media coverage. And so there are sort of stories and anecdotes and TED Talks and whatever, but I still think that the sort of fundamental message of political science research, even today, research on Facebooks and networks would suggest that people are have more diverse political messages than we might sort of think about the story of everybody sort of just being in one kind of funnel, uh, suggests that this really isn't really either new or really much of a change or a big deal or consequential to politics. So what's your sort of take on this political science perspective? I think it's wrong, <laughs> as you might have gathered from my talk. Uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I, I think we, well, we know that it is difficult to establish causation in any human realm. Uh, uh, and so, to some extent, any of our analyses are interpretive using a bunch of presuppositions. And perhaps this is one of them uh, that I have one set and your typical political scientist has another set, perhaps. Uh, but. I do think that certain aspects of what has been happening in politics have had uh, 
significant impact. I think one example of that would be what happened late in the last presidential campaign when Comey uh, flip-flopped on Hillary's emails. First of all, the media treated Hillary's emails as a really enormous issue. Including, <laughs> well, including the New York Times, although it was well, not as big a, a consumption of a consumer of that or purveyor of that view as uh, others. But, uh, but that, but many people do think that that changed some people's views in the last uh, week or two of the yeah. campaign, and there's some survey evidence of that, I think. And and it didn't take many views to be changed in three key states to to produce the Electoral College victory of, uh, of Donald Trump. So that, uh, I think that kind of thing may be more common than we, uh, than we expect, and uh, much of it depends on how you survey people and whether your survey is really uh, accurate in terms of both sample size, et cetera, and truth-telling by the uh, people who are doing the responding, which there's some evidence is often a problem too. I mean, for example, when they, after each election, they survey people to find out whether you voted or not in the presidential election, and if so, how you voted. And it always turns out that a much bigger percentage of the population voted than actually voted, because it's embarrassing to say you didn't vote. So I don't know. I'm more skeptical than you. I want to make a quick response. It'll be the last thing that I'll say, um, which is that no, but I, 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 I find that research persuasive, but then I think also political campaigns do as well, which is why they do focus their messaging now not on persuasion but on turnout, right? And turn, turnout to try to get people who are already in their camp out, out to the polls, like through the messaging and through their manipulation of messages, of messages in the media. Uh, but then to that extent, the, the obverse of that, if that's true, is that you know, those of us who are persuaded you know, might realize that we, we really don't need to be you know, contending in the public arena the way that we feel like we might. We don't need to be like, you know, mounting in our steeds into a, a Facebook you know, flame war. Right? It's not going to change anybody's minds. Right? That, that, that's not the way to do it. We're, we're just letting ourselves feel better about ourselves while giving Facebook endless clicks. Right, that the better thing to do, you know, as people have realized, if you want to affect elections, is to, you know, work to affect, you know, turnout directly, not indirectly. Of course, a fair amount of the uh, Russian intervention in the last election was designed to depress turnout. Exactly. Uh, and again, it's a little hard to know quite how to measure that effectively, but. Uh, a lot of people think that that was a, an effect, an effective effect of uh, Russian meddling. Uh, Jeremy Calabrese, and then Walter. I'm just Kurt. trying to wrap my mind around the framing here, but it seems to me that if we're going to accept the concept of fake news, that that is in opposition to something else, which is the true news. There has to be kind of a duality mm -hmm. here, uh, and in that connection, if you'll. Forgive me for reaching deep into the mists of the past, uh, but maybe three or four days ago, <laughs> it was widely believed uh, in our circles uh, that there was a, 
an investigation in progress that would establish, because of the high integrity of the investigator, that the president had engaged in uh, conspiracy and coordination with the Russians with respect to the 2016 uh, campaign. Uh, and a whole series of stories about a meeting in the Trump Tower in New York, about a project for a Trump Tower in Moscow, about a number of other things were lined up to support this uh, proposition. And everything that leaned against it was characterized as fake news. And then suddenly it appears that the report is delivered and a set summary sentence says that it did not establish uh, that the president was engaged in conspiracy or coordination with the Russians. And as part of that, uh, the letter that the Attorney General released uh, said that clearly the uh, report had distinguished between two forms of alleged Russian uh, involvement in the 2016 election. One form which was alleged and covered by the indictment was a Russian government operation allegedly hacking the DCC for whatever purposes. And the other form, which was what you described as Russian interference and a couple of times as Russian government interference, was the Internet Research Agency of St. Petersburg, which the Mueller report apparently, according to Barr, clearly separates from the Russian government and considers to be a private enterprise operation, which doing what it did would not be illegal if it had been done in the United States, and probably is not illegal anyway, since who, anybody can put anything up on Facebook without legal consequences, as far as I'm aware. So I'm wondering, in that light, uh, first of all, how much of the burden you've placed on, on President Trump, and I'm not a great fan of President but how much of the burden you place on him would be lifted if things which had he had called fake news now turn out uh, to have, uh, let's say, a, a preponderance of the evidence on their side, uh, and uh, whether this concept of fake versus truth has to yield to something else, which perhaps suggests that uh, I don't know that that, that this is a, this is kind of a, an accusation that is being cut, used for political effect, but where the clear, it's not entirely clear at any given time, what is fake and what isn't? Well, I think, first of all, we don't know what Mueller found yet. Sure. We well, know. Yes, we, have, we do. We do, on the contrary. We have, uh, we have a summary statement that I quoted, and uh, we have the proposition that if that were grossly misleading, Mueller and his team would be perfectly at liberty to let us know. As, for example, when Archie Cox was fired, they did show up in court with their materials uh, the next day saying, you know, this one's been suppressed. But there's been no sign of any such disagreement between Barr and Mueller's, Barr's characterization and Mueller's report yet. Yet. Yet is an important word there. Uh, and also, um, the, the question, the underlying question uh, that you haven't mentioned is what criterion was Mueller using in deciding that there was not evidence of collaboration or conspiracy? But no, but, uh, but I made clear that the proposition on the critical side of the spectrum was that Mueller, given his high reputation for integrity, was going to give us a true statement. Now, we can question whether we can now go and question his integrity, 
Well, I don't think that's at issue at this point. Barr didn't say there wasn't any evidence of conspiracy. Say what? Barr didn't say there was no evidence of conspiracy. He said the special counsel did not establish. Yeah, but did not establish. Assumption of many people is that that means that it, he, he could not establish in prosecutorial terms that would be defensible in a court of law, right. rather than uh, something. That is, that is, that is quite distinct. No, I, I which, like which, which also hinges on the distinction that you raised. But it's quite distinct because there, from what he says about obstruction of justice, where he says that Mueller did not draw a conclusion, mm -hmm. did not exonerate the president, right. that is very different from the language he uses with respect to Russia. Well, we'll see what if we if we ever do get uh, enough of the report to okay. examine, we'll see what it okay. says. I mean, I, these are legitimate uh, terms for discussion or items for discussion. I will I agree with you. I just want to raise this question about whether fake news is a you know, is a, a really useful category for discourse. Walter, and then Steve, yeah, and then... The thing that concerns me in this whole discussion is how fake news ultimately leads to fake history. And we're largely historians here, and should it take 50 years to figure out what really happened in a situation? Uh, I'm thinking of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, you were having a lot of fun poking at Trump to our general amusement. But this goes back way, way, way back. This has been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Fake news, uh, false flag events have been used to create history the way the, the rulers want it to be understood. And so this is with the new technology, uh, the ability to create this is so much more and more refined. Um, how do we discern what's really going on as a, as a public viewer? I mean, I just recently heard a, a, a statement by some reporters that they don't investigate the news, they just report it. Well, I think they're admitting they're simply put stenographers. I mean, to me, a, a journalist is supposed to investigate before they report. But they're saying, no, that's not our job. Well, who are the they in that sentence? Uh, I don't remember exactly. Well, stenographer was the, yeah, the term of opprobrium used for Judith Miller of the New York Times during the, the lead up to that's the Iraq right. War, yeah. right? I should have, should have uh, counseled back then. So, you know, we've, we've, we've got these things happening, and you know, we know that Kennedy wasn't shot by Oswald, but it's 50 years later that, that we know that. Uh, can we know any of this stuff at the moment? How do we get to the real truth? What separate from the fake to the reality? Well, that, I mean, that is a very legitimate question, but uh, there may be degrees of fakeness to fake news. And some of the things that, in fact, many of the things that President Trump has uttered that have been classed as fake news fall in the extreme end of that continuum, however we may characterize it. They're just, I mean, he, he states things that they're, I mean, take, take the first thing he did upon his election, which was, there are the two things. He declared that his crowd was bigger than any other crowd in history, which is patently, obviously false. Uh, 
And everybody else recognized that except for Kellyanne Conway and Sean Spicer. And, uh, and maybe Fox News, I don't know. I wasn't watching it at the time. But, and then the other thing was that three million illegal aliens voted in California, and that's why Hillary beat him in California. Now, that is utterly preposterous by anybody's uh, e evaluation, isn't it? Well, there's, there's that about Trump, but what about Bush the Younger? He certainly made plenty of fake news of his own. Oh, well, I'm not trying to defend Bush the Younger, if that's what not. you're getting at. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no doubt that there has been misrepresentation, and governments have often specialized in misrepresentation, as you were suggesting. How many people died because of Trump's uh, exaggeration, let's say, of the situation, uh, whereas Bush the Younger has killed, been responsible for the death of millions of people? That's not a, a question that I would uh, be interested in contesting, but that's not really what's at issue here because well, fake news. Break, uh, break Weinberg and then Can I, I saw quickly break my vow of silence again to say that I don't think we I don't think we've said the word journalism in, in the room yet, but I think it's really important to reflect, you know, on the, you know, the importance of of that profession, right, for mediating the news to us. For all my criticism of our, our practice of news consumption, right, I do think also that recognizing um, you know, the, the ideals and ethics of, of that profession and holding that profession to its ideals and ethics you know, is a big part of any possible solution to this situation. Steve? Uh, well, I had a brief remark, which is very obvious and probably unnecessary, just that the uh, fact that it is often difficult to tell fake news from true, and sometimes we get it wrong, uh, doesn't in the least imply that there's no difference and that the difference doesn't matter. Uh, I, I say this partly because I sense the greatest danger is not that there's a lot of fake news around, but that we're beginning to tolerate it and yeah. not care. Uh, about whether it's fake or true, that we, uh, we see it as a flag rather than a, an equation <laughs> with a flag. You don't say, is that flag true? It's a symbol of your group. And um, uh, I'm afraid a lot of uh, what passes as news is playing that role. Uh, I say this partly because a lot of this seems familiar to me from uh, commentary on the history of science. Uh, you know, when you study the history of science, you learn how much it's involved with human motivations and prejudices and how often people have gotten things wrong. And some uh, commentators, mostly not scientists, but sociologists and a few historians have been led to feel that science itself is a social construct and that um, uh, a set of uh, equations that govern the motion of the planets is an expression of the culture of its times. And, um, well, fortunately that view is less popular now than it was in the <coughs> 1990s. But in the toleration for fake news, I, I see the same kind of uh, 
lack of uh, vigilance about truth that I, I saw in the history of science. Yeah, yeah very good point. Uh, Carl Schmidt. Underlying much of what you've talked about uh, are value systems, and I have not heard you specifically talk to that point. How do value systems figure into what is true and what is false? Well, I thought I did refer to uh, yeah. the impact of value systems and the way we uh, encounter or just and then describe whatever we're talking about. Uh, but in any case, there's no doubt that, uh, but there are many different types of values after all, uh, some of which are uh, explicitly ethical and others of which are uh, are you might say, perceptual and cognitive. And uh, obviously, those things have very significant impacts. I, I have found, you know, I live in a retirement community. And I rub shoulders with lots of different kinds of people that I never rubbed shoulders with before. And I find values, value systems held by these people, odd ones, not based on much fact at all. In fact, they, they don't even know they have value systems. It's, it's <laughs> well, that may be a matter of uh, amnesia or they dementia, have, rather than... odd notions about in political discourse, for yeah. example. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. 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 yeah, I guess my question is, doesn't the media, this actually gets to, in some ways, to Sam's question about journalism and Steve's questions about sort of anti-scientism, doesn't journalism and, or actually the organized media deserve a large uh, uh, um, share of the credit or blame, if you will, in the following sense, is that, uh, okay, you have President Trump and candidate Trump who's talking about fake news, but it's really, you can look at the history of the media and you look at the abolition of the fair, new, fair, you know, fair, what is it, fair news, the, the red line case, the fair news doctrine, and that's being of candidates can look at the prohibition or the deregulation that um, companies can own the same media markets. So they can own the mm -hmm. same newspapers in, the, in a town. They can own, own cross-media platforms, radio. You have the breakdown of this. You have also the, um, the sale of, there's almost now no newspapers that are owned by families anymore, with exception of the Times, that is, of course, a controlling uh, um, share of the voting, but not in terms of the, mm -hmm. of the actual shares in terms of uh, distribution of profits or just the uh, governing, mm -hmm. uh, for, for governing purposes. But anyway, across the country, you have, you have all, all of the, all, all this has been absorbed by these newspaper groups or newspaper chains. Mm -hmm. And so you look at that and you look at sort of towns that I'm familiar with, Annapolis, Maryland, Burlington, Vermont, I'm sure you can all think of examples of where the newspapers, and Statesman here is a great example of the quality of the newspapers been gutted. And you can say this is really due to the selling out of the news to the bottom line and above all else, and to reduce costs. And you see the shutting down of farm bureaus across. Very, very few have bureaus in Washington. So what does this mean? It means when you have these simple ideas about the world, that there's no contesting news or challenges out there locally for people to encounter. And so you have, and you look at the news prior to Trump, and a really depleted quality of the news, mm -hmm. and you had previous to Trump, you had all that click, the, the incentives for click news and so forth, and so it, it seems that it's kind of this 
commercialization of the way by which we perceive and know the world that has been so capitalized, if you will, that has really done a great deal to make it vulnerable to what is happening now with artificial intelligence and Instagram and so forth. Steve Cole, the yeah. dean of the, uh, yeah. the, of the Journalism School at Columbia was here a couple of days ago, and he made the extra point that the major news uh, outlets are increasingly moving to a subscriber model, which then gives them a very strong incentive to cater to what they believe to be the beliefs of their subscription community. Mm -hmm. right. And so you get these cones of completely distinct uh, belief and fact structures in the, in, in the media. Now, it's, it's close to the issue that I, I was yeah. So the past, for the past 10, 15 years, we've intermittently heard uh, calls for the abolition of the Electoral College, et cetera, uh, most recently, for example, by a couple of um, uh, Democratic presidential 2020 hopefuls. So um, I have a couple questions. My first is, rarely, I'd like to hear your thoughts about this, rarely do people really kind of examine um, how this would work given um, the prevalence of what Steve Bannon refers to as psyops or disinformation campaigns. You know, if you have one person, one vote, uh, you know, that seems to be a very, a very vulnerable um, <laughs> system. You know, and yet people um, put, put it forth as if it's the, the, the solution to, to various issues within the republic. And my second question, and feel free to answer one or the other, on how much time you have. You mentioned that um, the RAND report on truth decay identified, and if I understood and heard you correctly, you mentioned uh, media and academia as the source of disinformation. And, and so I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that, and do you mean that there's been, um, there's great skepticism now in terms of uh, skepticism of expertise, Experts, um, uh, kind of accusation of sophistry, accusations of sophistry, and so, so on and so forth. And if you would, you know, what your if you would elaborate based on basically on, on what you mean in terms of well, I don't think the yeah the the Rand Corporation listed the academia in in a a long list of, or a fairly long list of other uh, actors, and I, it, it was not a major focus of their study. Uh, but there are now, I mean, there is tremendous pressure in some quarters to diversify academic faculties. For example, the National Association of Scholars is an example of an interest group trying to bring that about. And Betsy DeVos has actually uh, has a pro-initiative. Well, yeah. It, it, Yeah, and the uh, free speech is a very has become a very controversial, much differentially defined uh, as a result. On the electoral college, uh, the I, I don't think I don't know anybody who thinks that abolishing the electoral college will solve all our problems. But the big problem it will solve is the problem of most a, lot, a big majority of people voting for one candidate and the other one winning. Which and the shifting of, or, or the placement of greater uh, weight on the the votes of people in Wyoming, say than in California, uh, and the we have lots of data about that. Now there, 
there are particular instances where the Electoral College may favor, depending on the exact situation at any given moment, we may favor some big states over little states. Uh, and scholars have done a lot of work on that. And there was an interesting piece in the, I think it was the Wall Street Journal last week about, about that uh, as well. But, uh, but basically, the, the big problem with the Electoral College from that point of view is just that it delegitimates the, the victory in terms of the principle of one person, one vote, which. Mm -hmm. I'm not. Yeah. I'm more so interested in your thoughts on, um, you know, in the context of the effectiveness of disinformation campaigns and the source, you know, of information from for most people. You know, I think it was really recently that it came out that you're really, you know, certain percentage, 75 percent of people get their news from Facebook or, or what have you. I mean, there are real risks as well. Oh, that's definitely true. But that isn't <laughs> obviated by the Electoral College. In fact, it's, it might well be worsened as a, as a consequence of the, uh, those things, uh, in, given the Electoral College. I think College. we've reached the point where we need to call for concluding comments. Yeah, I'd like to reflect on Walter's um, comparison of fake news with fake history. Mm -hmm. I was made aware of that two nights ago. I don't know if any of you saw it on PBS, a show on King Arthur. It's on Netflix, too. And it was a real eye-opener, I guess. Well, in part, I guess. Because what they determined is that the Anglo-Saxons' invasion of Britain was not really violent, you know. The, and, well, we know from DNA evidence for the past 10 years that a small minority of Britons are actually of Germanic descent, that they're mostly Britons or Celts, essentially. So now we have the archaeologists kicking in, and they're agreeing with the DNA as well. And, uh, and the whole legend of King Arthur <coughs> defending against the Anglo-Saxons and the barbarians and all of that, I've been teaching this stuff, you know, for decades. <laughs> and it's all wrong. It's fake history. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for doing that. But you, can't, but you care, and you will repent, you know? And that, that, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't teach that shit anymore. So you're 20 years behind the times. It's, it's 20 years now since survey archaeology determined that there was no evidence of conflict in <coughs> well survey parts of Eastern England. Yeah, but it's taken so long to sink in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the real fake history is, is Jeffrey of Monmouth. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's where they start. Jeffrey of Monmouth and Denius the Monk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's news. It's a chronicle. I come from a field of classics where we haven't had a problem going to the non-existence of the Trojan War for centuries. But I did want to point out that one name has not turned up in this discussion at all, Harry Frankfurt. Some of you will know that he published an article in Raritan in 86 and then issued it as a best-selling book in 05. I won't use the eight-letter word in this gathering, but it was on BS. And much of the concern of someone like Glenn Kessler enumerating Trump's lies is really misplaced because everything he says, from probably baby talk forward, is simply BS, <laughs> situational, without regard for the truth or falsehood 
me say it. It's very important, I think, to realize that this underlies an awful lot of what goes on in the Jonathan Haidt righteous mind thinking and mindsets of people who aren't interested in truth or falsehood, mm-hmm. but how it makes them feel about themselves, about other yeah. groups. Yeah. Trump has been a master at that. Whatever else you say about it, it's all BS. It's true. <laughs> and I'm really surprised that didn't turn up at all. I mean, it's nice to talk about truth, yeah. fake news, and real news, but BS is the order of the dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that makes a good conclusion. <laughs>